Welcome to the fourth Ted Hughes Society podcast and a very happy new year to you all. This is the first of two podcasts arising from conversations I had recently with Dr. Mike Sweeting on Ted Hughes's relationship with religion. Our talks touched on Hughes's fascination with various pagan and occult beliefs, ranging from his engagement with the goddess, his fascination with shamanism, and his lifelong practice of astrology. We also talked about Hughes's antipathy to Christianity, despite having memorably declared that his favourite book was the Holy Bible. Mike is an ideal person to share his observations on Hughes and religion. A committed Christian, a theologian and a former pastor, he is also a noted scholar of Ted Hughes, having completed a doctoral thesis at Durham University entitled Patterns of Initiation in the Poetry of Ted Hughes, 1970-1980. One of the main themes of Mike's thesis is the pervasive influence of shamanism in Ted Hughes's work from early animal poems such as The Jaguar through to Gaudete. Mike is chair of the International Map Collectors Society, a fellow of the Institute of Directors and a council member of the Ted Hughes Society. He's an expert on mergers and acquisitions in business and has chaired charities working in deprived parts of northeast England, India and Romania. In this first podcast, Mike describes his own early engagement with Christianity and what initially attracted him to the poetry of Ted Hughes and what made him decide to undertake postgraduate study on Hughes. Mike then focuses mainly on the beliefs Hughes expressed or indicated as a younger man. He describes the kind of religious upbringing Hughes had and what traces his early religious experience and the very different beliefs of his family members, for example, his mother's Methodism and his sister's interest in the occult and astrology, can be detected in Hughes's poetry. Finally, Mike looks at Shakespeare and the Goddess of Complete Being, Ted Hughes's massive and idiosyncratic critical book, which arose from his lifelong fascination with magic, myth, religion and the works of Shakespeare. I came into Christianity with, with zero knowledge and, in fact, zero interest, um, uh, really because my parents were hard left activists and I was looking for something to annoy them. So uh, I thought, what will really wind mother and father up? Oh, right, going to church. It was successful. Uh, and I thought that would be it, really, uh, other than the fact that I had a youth group with lots of young ladies in it. However, uh, after that initial re- uh, attraction, I, I began to realised there was a bit more to it than that. I became a Christian when I was 15 years old and continued really ever since. Uh, at one stage, I was a full-time Christian pastor. At one time, uh, I was kind of a, a full-time acad- academic as well. But my experience of Ted Hughes went along a lot of this, with a lot of this, partly because um, his poetry resonated with my personal life. Uh, I was attracted uh, to his poetry by... Um, his bloody-mindedness and uh, actually the, that kind of aspect in the poetry. The PhD uh, arose from my interest in myth. I'd been reading C.S. Lewis, particularly his books uh, Till We Have Faces and his preface to Gawain and the Green Knight. And I'd been considering how 
I could see so much of that in, for instance, Wadwell. That other stuff was coming out while I was doing my uh, first degree. And so uh, Cave Birds came out in that period and Gaudete came in, out in that period. Well, Gaudete was a bit of a, a challenging one for me because you have an Anglican priest running around the place impregnating ladies. But the poetry at the end, I, I found very affecting and very meaningful. And so I've always uh, faced Hughes's poetry with a degree of utter admiration um, mixed together with, shall we say, almost pastoral concern for the guy. And that continues uh, to this day. When Remains of Element came out and Moortown, they, they were live to me. I was just begun the PhD. And of course, I was having to adapt what I wrote to, to these new volumes. However, because I'd spent much of my early life on a farm and uh, we had gone bust after huge amounts of labour, uh, I could really relate to Moortown in particular. Every single one of those poems, I felt I've kind of lived. Remains of Elmet was a different thing to me. I, I loved its northernness because of a lifetime interest in rock climbing. Every single one of Faye Godwin's uh, photographs that uh, included a, a cliff was appealing. I physically wanted to go there. I did and read the poems on the top of a lot of hills. But also I could see something of, of his own heart for the area, which took me away from seeing him as an intellectual poet and more as a poet of the heart than I'd really seen him before. Uh, it's worth saying that primitive Methodism is very different from much of the other religious activity uh, that was present in West Yorkshire. It had a tradition of, uh, of being inspirational, of large outdoor meetings rather than indoor ones. Uh, they used to meet up on the top of Mo Cop. They used to meet on the top of that, that bald hill you see on the M62 near Bradford. In, in all these things, I felt he was creating a false dichotomy. I can see how for a little boy, it would be desperately boring to go along to a Sunday school when you want to be out fishing. However, the faith itself was in itself um, individualistic. Uh, it was pretty well in touch with nature, actually. It, it, it welcomed prophecy and interpretation of dreams. And so you can see why his mother Hilda did not see any kind of dichotomy between her interest in, in dream interpretation and her faith. And another thing I noticed is how influenced he was by all his family members. By Gerald, he wanted to be a gamekeeper. By Olwyn, he gets interested in the, the, these matters of astrology and the occult. Um, by his mother, it's more osmosis with his mum. And of course, there's the, the fascination with his father as a, almost a statue, a figurehead. So he was bound, being so prone to being influenced when he was young, to be highly affected by it all. Uh, and you can see that being lived out over a lifetime of poetry. So here's a man who carried a Bible with him uh, on national service and who said to the whole world that it was his favourite book, who was perceived by many to be seeking to undermine it throughout his poetic career. You have a person who used biblical um, patterns, uh, biblical uh, rhythms and cadences in so much of his poetry, um, and yet seemed to be hostile to, um, should we say, the subject matter of the Bible. Uh, particularly God the Father himself. I suppose we could get all psychological about that and his relationship with his father, but we're just looking at this observationally today. Uh, and observationally, I think his early influences were all clamouring for his attention. Uh, and a lot of, he had a lot of problem, I think, for the first 20 years to sort out the different strands of that clamour um, as his poetic voice developed. You then start to look at individual things. And again, I, I see... One end of the spectrum, his writing for children, which you can see owes a great deal to the Psalms. 
often it's aphoristic, often it's very direct, um, just like verses of the Bible. He almost obsessively looked at creation myths, many of which had a biblical resonance. Other end of the spectrum, I would regard Shakespeare and the goddess of complete being. What he's worshipping there is complexity. I did a little study of the length of the sentences. I took a random group of five pages and found that 38 words was the normal length of a sentence. But one uh, stinker was 62 words long. So that's a man who can't really express what he wants to say. That's a man who's going around in circles. Most of us have not read the complete book as a result, e even those of us who are academically interested. So he's trying to set up this goddess figure uh, as central to literature, central to life, um, but it's actually very dry. It doesn't live. And I find this fascinating that when he's closest to the biblical model, there's life in his poetry, so in, in his prose. But when he's away from it, away from this root, he actually becomes as dry and dull as the Methodism he was criticising. The white goddess thing obviously started, uh, as far as we can tell, with John Fisher. It's a very interesting uh, gift to a young man starting out in life. Uh, and you could say that his whole poetic career is a clash between the Bible and the white goddess. Lived out uh, because he was so interested in being a poet with a capital P in obsessive detail. And we're given an, an insight into that by his sheer volume of writing. Uh, and therefore, it's not surprising that some of it veers one way and some of it veers the other. I would argue that his greatness as a poet is, is when he touches imminence, when he touches some sense of the divine. Uh, and I don't care what he calls it. I think it's just legitimate in its own right. Calling him just a nature poet becomes damning with faint praise at that point, because so many people can relate to him at a, a spiritual level greater than he himself thought he was delivering. And I'd like to define things here a little bit because he's looking at religious topics partially just as an intellectual exercise. He's also interested in, the, in them as echoes or tools for uh, excavating something else. Often he, he avoids matters of personal faith, quite obviously to me. And for instance, he, he advise, avoids the topic of worship, uh, which one would see as inherent to any religious practice and, and so he admires the, the Siberian sh shaman but he doesn't wish to worship like a, a Siberian shaman. He admires a Zoroastrian but interestingly in all that Augustine Persepolis period he has no interest in Zoroaster the prophet. Uh, he starts to look at the dualism that's what he's keen on. Ahura Mazda versus Araman. So he actually makes a beeline away from the, the key figure to uh, matters of dualism. In other words, a more intellectual response than one of faith or of worship. You could see that he prefers initiatory beliefs over beliefs that result in some kind of resolution. So again, shamanism has that. The Siberian shaman climbs a tree uh, in order to be closer to God. Uh, and the divinity is caught in the branches of the tree, as it were. Many of the shamanistic rituals involve pain. So, yeah, of course, we can see that in Prometheus on his crag, with Prometheus's liver being eaten and renewing uh, every day. Constant repetitive suffering. Uh, and it's all about man reaching up to God rather than God reaching down to man. And, and that's where I, I perceive his, his biggest misapprehension of, of Christianity lies. He, he sees uh, everything to do with it as a performance. Man performs or man conforms, one or the other. And I can personally quite understand if that's your perception. It is a bit repulsive, isn't it?
you know, we have to perform our way to God by dancing right, you know, clapping right, doing this right, doing that right. Or we have to conform to some kind of oppressive imposition upon us to become satisfactory. To me, that's not the heart of Christianity at all. Um, to me, it's about the grace of God reaching down to man. Um, it's about a baby, a vulnerable baby, born in a manger with a suspect birth and a you know, suspect family. And you will find generally no reference to the, the actual New Testament narrative in his work. It, it's always finding some of the nasty bits he can criticise rather than the, the sense that, that, that there's grace available to all. Um, grace makes you gracious. Grace um, smooths things along. When I look back at my 15-year-old self, I, I can honestly say that I didn't seek God. He sought me. Much of what Hughes is re uh, reacting against, I I've just never, ever seen in my life. To me, um, Hughes's work leads to avoidance of surrender all the time. He's always trying to get out of what he sees as giving in. But from my perspective and uh, the faith perspective, Orthodox Christianity would see surrender as a very good thing because you're saying that uh, I'm not as important uh, as I think I am, that I, I need to submit, that I, I need to cast down my crown, not parade myself around in it. In other words, a humbling of yourself, which he seemed to really, really, really struggle with in any sense that he needed to adapt himself to others, that he needed to think of others' needs above his own. It's interesting that in later life, he's often portrayed as um, a sensitive man, a, a man who's thoughtful. But this is the same man who bought his um, mentally ill wife a Ouija board, believing that it would help her creative juices, who constantly, to me, boasted about his marvellous dreams to a person he knew was having huge problems having any dreams at all and wondering why she could get uptight with it and eventually become uh, so exercised it's got constant diary matter to Sylvia Plath. I'm not dreaming like then and he's ramming it down my throat all the time. That amazing lack of self-knowledge, I have to attribute myself to an amazing lack of humbling yourself I therefore can easily see why, why Christianity in particular would annoy him. I've got a couple of quotations here from the British Library, Ted Hughes Archive. I'm very grateful to Anne Skier for uh, drawing our attention to this. Here's the first quote. If I truly am intended to make a closer communication with the divinity or with my sense of divinity, and this is the steady illuminating thought in my working life, I ought to be taking more serious moves. In other words, if this thing is really important, I ought to be doing something about it. You can see this tension. There's something important here, but I find that I always want to recoil from it. And he couldn't himself see why he did. Although he says later in the same bit of the archive, I have a habit of provisional resistance. And this horrible word he invented, dilettantation of intellectual approach. Something that I think he could easily be criticised for uh, throughout his life. But he could see it. And I'm gratified of that growing self-awareness. Busyness, scepticism. So here's a person who's immersed in the esoteric, but cursed with a very sceptical brain. No wonder he was a bad wizard or whatever he thought he was during his magical phase, because he would have needed greater focus and, funny enough, greater arrogance if he was going to pursue the truly occult route. So he's recoiling from that, I think partly because of his family background, sensible working class Christian Methodism, you know, 
uh, actually and that would not go terribly well together. I would actually like to uh, quote Anskier here because Hughes started a, a correspondence in 1990 with an Anglican divine, a guy called Merwin Merchant, who was trying to come to grips with what Hughes actually believed about anything uh, because he could be very evasive uh, and swap his position on spiritual matters, uh, which I would, again, having been a pastor, um, connect to how he felt about himself and how depressed he might have been. He said this, the process of creation and created life are divine, inverted commas. The goal for animals is to live a divine life in a divine world. We suffer because he thinks we are ego conscious and that our animal spiritual nature has not been engaged. It's because of our ability to manipulate abstract ideas and direct our behavior against instinct. Uh, we have lost the divine world and internal identity with the divine self. So why did this man, who thought that was such a problem, write such a turgid pile of goddess of the complete being? I suppose I've laid my cards on the table in my opinion of that book. And it's not because it's about a goddess versus a god or anything like that. It's because it's a complete contradiction of his own perception of how instinct, emotion matter a lot. If you read that book and that book alone, you'd think that none of those kind of things matter to this man. Uh, and it's dichotomous. Uh, and you can clearly see a man who is struggling with his mental health while writing it. And he says later, doesn't he, that it, it stole 10 years of his life. And we can also see how his creative output declined during the period he embraced these ideas. And so even within his own spirituality, he was out of touch with himself. A phrase that, by the way, he was used about uh, the period just before he left for Ireland, when he couldn't really face up to uh, what life might look like without Sylvia. He says that I was out of touch with myself and he saw dreams as a, as a way of reconnecting. Uh, the dreams did begin again after a terrible period of obviously mourning and loss. It's back down to this stepping back from, from uh, the divine. I would say his other attitude is to be drawn to the complex or the splinters as an avoidance tactic. But that's all I can deduce from that. And when he said is at best poetic, you can start to see uh, transcendence, imminence start to reappear. What most religions would call true spirituality. I'd like to conclude this podcast by reading one of the early hymns sung by primitive Methodists, the sect to which Edith Hughes belonged. This hymn was transcribed by W.J. Harper on the Cheshire side of Mo Cop. Mo Cop is a village that straddles the borders of Cheshire and Staffordshire and consequently is on the boundary between the northwest and the West Midlands of England. At the time this hymn was popular, there were no primitive Methodist hymn books. All hymns were sung from memory. This hymn was transcribed in the same way that Vaughan Williams, Gustav Holst, A.L. Lloyd, Francis Child and others collected old folk songs and ballads. The primitive Methodist who dictated this hymn claimed he'd never seen a printed copy, although he'd sung it hundreds of times, set to what he described as a rollicking tune. This was the primitive Methodist way, to memorise their hymns and to sing them in the open air and in public. And I'm sure many listeners will know of Hughes's own prodigious feats in memorising.
particularly Shakespeare, and his zeal for encouraging children and adults to learn poetry by heart. Singing, glory, hallelujah, the Lord is with us still, the little clouds increasing that rose upon Mole Hill. One day as I was walking along a certain way, I met a band of Christians, and they were wont to pray. In unity and order, they slowly moved along, the gospel news sounding, in lofty strains they sang. I said, what people are they? The primitives, they said. We are a band of Christians, and Jesus is our head. From sin's dark veil we travel, to joys at God's right hand. Say, will you go to glory? Then come and join our band. We preach salvation full and free. We preach salvation now. We bid the guilty come to God and stop to tell him how. The vilest wretch that breathes the air, who does repent of sin, shall prove that Christ is strong to save and free to take him in. Well, I'll be one amongst you. So here's my heart and hand. Henceforth, I am a primitive, one of the happy band. I love your modes of worship. I love simplicity. Adieu, my old companions, a primitive I'll be. So, now I am a primitive, one of the noisy crew. We shout when we are happy, and that we ought to do. And if we are blamed for shouting, for that we do not care. We'll urge our way to glory and shout forever there, singing, glory, hallelujah, the Lord is with us still, the little clouds increasing that rose upon Mow Hill.